Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. On today's show, we're going to focus on the very important and very personal issue of infertility risks and options that people affected by cancer need to consider. But before we begin, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. A recent study revealed that women with long-standing hypothyroidism, commonly referred to as an underactive thyroid, are at increased risk of liver cancer. By contrast, hypothyroidism is not significantly associated with this malignancy in men. Hypothyroidism is a condition in which the thyroid gland fails to produce enough thyroid hormone. The thyroid gland normally releases the hormones T3 and T4 that control metabolism and underproduction may affect all body functions. Risk factors for hypothyroidism include being older than 50 years of age, exposure of the neck to x-ray or radiation treatment, female gender, obesity, and thyroid surgery. Thyroid hormones are also known to be involved in lipid metabolism and fatty acid oxidation. However, whether thyroid disorders are associated with liver cancer has been unclear. To answer this question, researchers compared the occurrence and nature of thyroid disease in 420 patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, the most common type of liver cancer, and a group of 1,104 healthy individuals without hypothyroidism. After accounting for factors that could influence the patient's outcome, such as demographic factors, alcohol use, family history of cancer, and other possible confounders, researchers found that women who had hypothyroidism for longer than 10 years were 2.9 times more likely to develop liver cancer than those without thyroid disease. If the patients also had diabetes and chronic hepatitis virus infection, the odds ratios increased to 9.4 times and 31.2 times, respectively. Researchers concluded that further studies among different populations are warranted to confirm the association between hypothyroidism and liver cancer and to identify the underlying biological mechanisms and the genetic predisposition factors that may contribute to susceptibility to cancer development in the presence of thyroid disorders. You may have recently read in the entertainment headlines that Hollywood couple Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick are expecting twins via surrogacy. Um, While most Hollywood pregnancies are guaranteed to make tabloid news, Parker and Broderick's decision to choose the method of surrogacy sheds light 
on just one of the options to treat infertility. For many men and women with cancer, their cancer treatments may inhibit their ability to have children. But if you or someone you know falls into this category, there are resources available to help you plan and make decisions about your future. Today, we are pleased to bring you some of this important information as well as practical tips you can use to evaluate your options and start working towards your personal goals. First, we have the compelling story of Pamela McPhee. Pam graduated from Stanford University in 1986 with a degree in in human biology and a secret passion for writing. After delivering a baby girl named Hope to her cousin and his wife in May of 2001, she went on to write about it in a new book called Delivering Hope, The Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom. Thanks for being here, Pam. Thank you so much for having me. We are also joined by my colleague, Dr. Joanne Bazoglo. Uh, Joanne is the Senior Director of Research at the Wellness Community. She is a Ph.D. psychologist and uh, I know also has quite a bit to share on this topic. So thanks for being here, Joanne. I love it. Thanks. Great. Um, so I really want to just uh, get right get started, and um, I'm going to start with you, Pam. Uh, and I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about your book, Delivering Hope, uh, the Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom. How did you come to play such an important role in your cousin and his wife's cancer experience? Give us some of that background. Uh, well, I actually I grew up with my cousin. We grew up together, um, you know, backpacking in the Sierras and skiing on the weekends and, you know, jumping on beds together and turkey dinners and all of that. Um, We grew up together, so we were really close as kids. And as we got older, we kind of um, grew apart when we went off in different directions to college. Um, But we reconnected on a river trip through the Grand Canyon with our extended families. And on that trip is when I first really got to know his wife, Lauren. Um, And we had a great time on that trip, and they talked to me and my husband, Robert, about their interest in um, starting a family, and they had a lot of questions for us about having kids um, because we had three children of our own. And um, it, was a, it was a great time to connect with them, and it was shortly after that, though, about a month later that Lauren was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And um, after hearing about her cancer, I just wanted to do anything that I could to help help them out, and I learned that um, because of treatment, she would not be able to, she would probably not be able to carry a child. Um, and so I researched their options, um, and one of the options that they would have would be surrogacy. If they harvested eggs and froze embryos, then they would have, have the option of um, having their own child, but have someone else carry it for them. And I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to give them, you know, some hope or something positive in light of all the devastation that comes along with a cancer diagnosis. So um, that's kind of what, where it all started. Wow. That's just an amazing, amazing decision. I mean, you know, a lot of people decide they're going to give somebody a casserole or <laughs> walk their dog. <laughs> It's all about. I mean, it's all about imagining. You know, if I had that diagnosis and yeah. having three children of my own, I could just imagine being told that I would never be able to have a family. Um, and they had just started exploring that option, and they were so excited about that. That, and it was just so devastating to hear that that just wouldn't be a possibility for them. So when there was this, you know, this glimmer of hope, this option. Um, I just, you know, I, d- I thought about it a lot, but I just really wanted to be, you know, help help them be part of the solution and give some, them something positive to focus on. 
That's amazing, Pam. It's an amazing story. We're really going to explore uh, more facets of that today uh, on our show, and I have a lot of a lot of questions for you, and I'm sure our listeners have a lot of questions as well about how someone arrives at such a you know monumental decision. Um, but Joanne, tell us um, uh, tell us a little bit about why uh, fertility is important to consider for for men and women when it when it comes to cancer treatment. I imagine you're diagnosed with cancer, and you're thinking. Gosh, you know, am I going to live? Am I going to die? Am I going to lose my hair? Am I going to, you know, be able to work? I mean, I think there are a lot of issues, and um, I would imagine sometimes fertility might not be the first thing that you think about. Exactly. I mean, I think that um, really, upon initial diagnosis, usually what you're thinking about is, you know, what it, you know, cure. Are you going to be able to, you know, how long you be able to live? How is treatment's going to be like? And fertility may not be the uppermost thing in your mind. Um, getting rid of the cancer is often the priority. Um, but, but some, but the threat of fertility is, of losing fertility, it can be there. And being told that, about the prospect of losing your fertility can be overwhelming, no matter whether or not you have children or you don't have children, um, or whether you've considered having them before. Um, so that goes for both men and women. Um, you know, cancer treatments, all the different kinds of cancer treatments can affect fertility, including chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. For example, chemotherapy can kill healthy uh, living cells, which includes sperm, and that mm-hmm. really affect men. Um, but it also can damage and destroy you know, eggs in women. Um, and radiation can also kill sperm if it's directed towards the testicles. Radiation can damage or destroy eggs if it's directed towards the pelvic area. And the treatment, I understand, also can sometimes put women into premature menopause. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the most important things is is that you have an opportunity to really discuss what your options are, yeah. you know, with the doctor before you as as you're making treatment decisions. I mean, that's what's really important. And I understand, you know, we hear at the wellness community from a, a lot of women who said, you know what, nobody ever brought this up with me. My yeah. doctor never brought it up. My you know, nurse never brought it up. Nobody ever even broached the subject with me. So I think, um, Joanne, that one of the reasons that it's important that we're having this show today is because we want folks to know that if they're diagnosed with cancer and they're, you know, as you said, even thinking at all about having children, having more children, that this is something that the patients need to be educated on and really need to initiate that conversation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that you're feeling, and it may be at the time of diagnosis, you're not thinking really about having children. It sounds like, Pam, that you're... Um, your cousin and his wife was really, they were really, they were already on their way to thinking about having a family. But sometimes you diagnose before you're having those thoughts, and it may not be primary in mind, but you want to be able to keep those options open. And because, you know, we change as time goes on. Yeah. So, Pam, we've got uh, a couple minutes till a break coming on here, but um, so tell us a little bit more about, about what happened with Lauren. She was diagnosed with cervical cancer, and then um, did she learn about some of the fertility issues and some options. We understand that um, she decided to harvest eggs and freeze embryos. How did she get to that decision? And, and uh, you know, did she have a good uh, medical team working with her on that? Well, she was, um, you know, as Jen was talking about, she was initially shocked and devastated by the cancer diagnosis. Um, and, you know, obviously she was focused on the treatment itself and getting rid of the cancer, staying alive. Um, but she was lucky enough to have an oncologist who um, suggested to her that she harvest eggs so that she could 
you know, preserve her fertility future. And, you know, even though Henry and Lauren had been talking um, about starting a family, um, you know, she was just so emotionally focused on getting the cancer out of her body that, you know, honestly, she looked at, at the possibility of harvesting eggs and freezing embryos as kind of a side project. It was not, not a primary focus for her at all. Um, but, it, but, you know, with her husband, with Henry, they were able to talk about it with the oncologist and decided to, you know, move ahead and harvest eggs and freeze the embryos. There's, you know, really no downside to doing that, and it preserved the possibility for them to have their own biological children. Um, she was going to be going through radiation treatment, um, which was, you know, ultimately successful, but the treatment itself um, ended up creating kind of a, you know, a hostile environment in her uterus is how the fertility specialist described it. So wow. even though her uterus was intact after surgery, um, she it, it wouldn't have been able to, you know, carry a baby. So How old was uh, Lauren when she was diagnosed with cancer? She was just 29, I think. Wow. She's really wow. young, yeah. And did they give her a good, uh, we're going to take a break here in just a minute, but did they give her a good prognosis? I mean, did they, when she was diagnosed? They did. She actually had a very aggressive form of cervical cancer. It's an unusual form, and so, and they did an unusual surgery to try to get rid of it, which was successful, but they were concerned that they hadn't gotten in all of it, which is why they moved on to the radiation. To the radiation. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, we uh, are talking today about uh, fertility and uh, fertility options for folks who are diagnosed with cancer. Um, there's a lot that we want to educate people uh, on the show today. Um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I've got two great guests with me uh, today, Pam McPhee and Joanne Bazaglo. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. 
But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking about the infertility issues that many people affected by cancer uh, face when undergoing treatment. We're here with Pam McPhee, author of a new book called Delivering Hope, The Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom. And we're also here with Dr. Jo- Joanne Bazaglo. Uh, Joanne is a Ph.D. psychologist. She is Senior Director of Research at the Wellness Community. Um, Pam, you're sharing really an extraordinary story with us today about how you decided to become a surrogate for your cousin and his wife uh, when she was diagnosed with cancer. Um, How did you come to that decision, and and, and how did the conversation even get started with Henry? How did you make the offer? Well, after I initially did a lot of research online um, on surrogacy itself and kind of came to the conclusion in the middle of the night one night, actually, that this is really something that I wanted to offer the option to to my cousin, um, I, I tried, I struggled with trying to figure out how to approach him with it. Um, you know, it wasn't something that they were going to ask me. I think it would be really hard to ask of someone else. But I wanted to be able to offer, you know, propose it to them. Um, and it was an interesting situation because they were still obviously focused at the time on treatment and recovery. Um, Lauren was actually still, still had about a month or two of treatment left when I made the initial offer. Um, I chose to do it. We had a family gathering at my parents' house on Christmas Day. Um, it was Christmas dinner, and it was going to be the first time that I was going to be face-to-face with them since we'd been on the river trip and since Lauren had had her diagnosis. Um, and so I, I t- tossed and turned with it for weeks about kind of how to approach that, how do I do that. Um, and it just, that, that night after dinner, um, it was hard to find a time to speak alone with them, you know, because you're in the middle of a, a large family gathering. Um, so just at the end of the night, I kind of cornered Lauren, actually, at the top of the stairs. And, um, you know, even though Henry is my cousin, I had kind of come to the conclusion that it would be important for me to talk to Lauren first to offer um, the option to her because she was the one who had lost the ability to carry a baby. You know, she was the one who was kind of reeling with that lost privilege and opportunity. Um, and though we're, you know, we're not related, I, I felt it really should be, you know, initially at least kind of her choice whether she wanted to, you know, continue the opportunity to pursue it. Um, you know, with surrogacy, you can go through an agency. There are several reputable surrogacy agencies out there where they will match an, a couple up with a surrogate that they have screened. Um, so that would have been an option for them. But I thought, you know, for my cousin, um, that it would be less frightening, I think, um, and more of a, um, you know, beneficial experience, I think, to be able to do it with a family member with someone that um, that at least he was already close with. And, and Lauren and I had gotten to know each other on the, on the uh, river trip, even though I didn't really know her very well yet. Um, but so I approached her on 
Christmas Eve and just kind of, I shocked them, I think, with my offer because they weren't, I understand, like, they weren't really focused on surrogacy yet. They were still focused on curing the cancer. So um, she had just a couple of words in response and didn't really know what to say in it. Um, and I didn't get have an opportunity, unfortunately, to talk to my cousin that night. And so um, she shared it with him later that night, I found out. And um he called me um, a few days later, and in the interim, I was very nervous waiting for their response because I wasn't sure if, you know, they thought I was crazy or inspired. <laughs> but um, um, And so I just waited for them to call me back, and um, then Henry and I had an opportunity to talk about it over the phone. And so this was completely your idea? Um, it was. They hadn't. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't even know if, I mean, I think they had heard the word surrogacy at that point, but I don't think they had done any, any exploration into kind of what that meant. Um, so it was just something, you know, when I, like I said before, when I heard that, heard about the diagnosis and they were devastated by by that, um, you know, by first of all trying to you know, make sure that she would survive and then second of all by taking away their kind of fertility options, um, I really wanted to just do something to help and I felt like this was, you know, kind of an extraordinary opportunity, and and honestly, I'm I'm probably or was probably the only one in our family um, that was in a position to be able to offer that. Um, but that isn't why I, I didn't feel compelled or obligated um, to to be the one to offer to be a surrogate. I just um, I just felt like it was something that I that I really wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. And how did you how did you talk about that with your husband before you decided to? Uh, well, the, the, after doing a bunch of research online on the Internet one night, and he actually didn't. I kind of did that part initially in secret. I didn't really let him in on that because um, I wanted to do the research first and see if it was something I was really interested in doing and capable of doing and thought I could handle. Um, and after doing that, um, just late, you know, late one night I, uh, after he came home from work and the kids were in bed, I just said, you know, I've been doing this research, um, and I, I really think I'd like to offer them the opportunity to be their surrogate. And um, my husband is a very caring, giving, generous man, and he he loves to help people. And so when um, when I suggested that, he was excited about the possibility. Although he was more cautious, like he he was concerned about my safety, yeah. um, which makes sense. Um, so he had a lot of questions. But um, in, a, in a very short time, he was totally on board and excited along with me to be able to offer the opportunity to them. Wow. Well, that's amazing. You know, Joanne, we've got, so you've, you've got two couples involved here, right? You've got, uh, uh, you've got Pam and her husband and really coming to that decision and talking that piece through. And then you've got uh, Henry and Lauren who were dealing with not only cancer but also, you know, this uh, impending issue of, of, uh, of infertility. You know how how can these fertility issues impact a you know a couple's relationship? Not only do you have cancer now, but now you have this prospect of then not being able to uh, to have children. It's got to be really difficult to deal with in a relationship. Well, I just want to say, you know, I'm just so sort of impressed and um, blown over, <laughs> uh, Pam, by um, clearly your close relationship and. It, just both with your husband and with your with your cousin and his wife and the way you were able to communicate i mean i think I think really communication is you know is the key to success in any relationship in all relationships but often when you have a when you have this issue of fertility, it can really challenge a couple um, 
in, in so many ways. Because, for example, there may be one, one person in the couple who, for them, their whole goal in life was to have children. And for another, you know, for the other, maybe that may be less important. So, or, um, you know, one of the, one of the most difficult things about, uh, fertility issues is that it impacts, you know, a couple's sex life. And, and that, that can be filled with shame and anger and resentment. And so rather than, you know, getting closer during a sort of a really challenging time, you know, sometimes couples can move apart and they can feel more uh, lonely and isolated. And I think the challenge always is, you know, how do you, how do you really, as a couple, learn how to communicate about really very, very sensitive issues? And then there's the other side of it, too. You know, often couples feel socially isolated. It can be very painful when you see your, you know, your peers, your friends with, you know, young families, and you can't have that yourself. And sometimes one of the ways people cope is, you know, by avoiding, you know, avoiding their close contacts. And, and that can be painful, too. So it's pa- it can be painful to be with your friends who have what you want, and it can be painful to be, to be um, you know, pulling back from them. So it's it's a very challenging issue for couples. I mean, it just is. Yeah, yeah. Pam, how, how did how did other people around you react? I mean, I've, you know, obviously you talked this through quite at length with your husband, and but but did, how did other people? Did people criticize you? Did people question you? Were there people around you who who were not supportive of your decision? Um, you know, I was lucky in that I didn't get any direct criticism. Um, there was there were questions. Um, there were people who were definitely less supportive than others, or you know they were just silent. You know, just kind of no response. Um, occasionally during the surrogacy, there would be um, you know a crass remark. Or I, I went into a photo store once, and the, while I was very pregnant, and um, the issue came up, and I didn't want to bring it up, but he kind of forced the issue. The store owner. And um, and he said something to me, effective. Well, hey, you can make a lot of money doing that. And it's like, well, first of all, it's for my cousin, so I'm not making any money. But that's really not the point. Um, but you did have, um, you know, there were there were, were some remarks like that. But um, mostly, traditionally, people would be shocked initially when they would hear of my surrogacy, both um, friends and strangers. But usually, that initial shock and silence was followed by. A multitude of questions, and um, and sometimes it would be an hour later, or sometimes it would be a day later, or weeks later, mm-hmm. um, and mostly I got lots and lots of support from friends and family and strangers alike, um, and I found during the surrogacy that that support and encouragement was um, was really key in being able to handle the surrogacy gracefully because it is a challenging year. Um, there are a lot of challenges that come up. During just during the process, and those um, you know, the friends and family, and even strangers that are supportive of your decision, um, kind of really help you get from point to point along the way. Had you met um, Had you met anyone who had been a surrogate before? You know, I was able to um, you know in the in the process of evaluation before we started the surrogacy, um, we went through a psychological evaluation with a psychologist. Um, her name was Karen Chernikoff, and she specialized in surrogacy. And um, she also ran a support group um, for surrogates in the area. Southern California has um, a, quite a large uh, group of surrogates because California is one of the most um, 
friendly states to surrogacy um, in the country and also in the world. So people come to California from all over the world, actually, um, to go through surrogacy, and we just happen to live here. But um, it, So in my area, there are several surrogates and surrogacy agencies, and so uh, Karen Chernikoff ran this support group. So I went to that a couple of times, one at the beginning of my, once at the beginning of my surrogacy and once at the end. Um, that was really the only time I met another surrogate. I never happened to meet anyone in passing. But um, it was interesting meeting other surrogates and um, getting their perspective. All of the ones that I met were doing it through an agency, um, which is, you know, different, was a different experience than mine, but there were a lot of similarities as well. You, you come across a lot of the same um, challenges, too. Pam, we're going to go to break in uh, in uh, just a minute or two. But when you, you know, when you were doing your research about this, and when you started to meet these women and and and, and talk this out a little bit more, what were there things that that surprised you? Were there things that you hadn't thought about, or things that uh, you know that really took you by surprise? About the women, or about the experience? about the sur- about the idea of surrogacy in general? Oh, there yeah, there were there were a lot of things that came up that were surprises, and not. Um, you know, not, not negative, but just things that I wouldn't um, expect. You know, either there was, I would say one of the most surprising moments was when I met um, this older gentleman who was a friend of my aunt, who was the mother of my cousin who I was doing the surrogacy for. And he's, a, you know, a test pilot, so he has one of the most daring, frightening jobs in the world. Um, and he, the surrogacy came up, it was at a 4th of July dinner or something, and it came up, yeah. and um, he had tears in his eyes just talking to me. So I think the most, the thing that impacted me the most was how it affected different people, just how the idea. How people reacted. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's amazing. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking today about uh, fertility and particularly fertility options for folks who are facing cancer. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or 
or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm joined today by Dr. Joanne Bazaglo, who is the Senior Director of Research at the Wellness Community, and Pam McPhee, author of a book called Delivering Hope, The Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom, and uh, Pam was a surrogate for her cousin uh, and his wife uh, when uh, uh, Henry's wife, Lauren, was uh, diagnosed with cancer. Pam, um, let's talk a little bit more about your cousin, Henry. Um, how, how did the whole situation uh, affect him, and how did he cope as a as a caregiver and then as a as a hopeful father, he was sort of going through, I'm sure, quite a range of emotions. Well, he was. I think his situation may have been the most difficult, you know, trying to take care of his wife and reassure her and then worried about me and worried about the baby. And um, the whole, you know, initially the whole cancer diagnosis obviously threw him for a loop. He, and he is one of those people that is a planner, a preparer, an organizer, and this wasn't something he had planned for. Um but he's a, he's also a caring, just loving, genuine man. I love him dearly. Um, and I think when he when the diagnosis first came about, like like all guys generally, he wanted to do something to fix it. Um, and there wasn't really anything he could do. I mean, he could do a lot of research and do as much as he could to help Lauren make the best decisions about um, cancer treatment. Um, but I think the surrogacy itself gave him something to focus on and give him hope and, and something to do to, to, to fix it. He could focus and plan and research on the idea of surrogacy, um, something positive that could come out of this whole devastation of cancer. Um, and so he, he, um, he was reluctant, though, I think, to embrace um, our surrogacy, even you know, in the beginning, you have you have initial steps. So we had initial successes with you know the evaluations went well, and then the embryo transfer went well, and then they found a heartbeat. And you know, every step along the way, um, it was a positive. But I watched him. It was interesting watching him because there would be like a, a little bit of light, like okay, this is something a little bit positive they can focus on. But he was hesitant to embrace the success altogether. He's very cautious, um, understandably so. I mean, he had just been faced down with the fact that his wife could, could die with, from cancer, and, um, and he was cautious about embracing any kind of success. Um, so on the one hand, he was kind of reluctant to embrace the surrogacy, um, but he also took a very um, protective role with me, which was really endearing, I have to say. The... Um, the night, you know, when we first did the transfer, and actually before the transfer, when when everything was cleared to go ahead, I I sensed kind of a shift in his in our relationship and the way he treated me, and and that that carried over throughout the whole surrogacy. He was just 
um, very protective of me. Um, you know, like I said, it was a difficult situation for him caring for a wife, you know, st- who's still recovering from cancer, basically, um, and reassuring her. You know, she's been told she can never carry, it a ch- carry a child, and so she's obviously suffering from that devastation as well. Um, and then he's worried about, you know, me, his cousin, um, you know, doing this incredible thing for him, um, and he's worried about how that's going to affect me and my health, and then he's worried about the baby inside me, if everything's good and safe, and so it was a stressful, um, it was a stressful time for him, but I was able to see him as the surrogacy progressed successfully. I was able to see him um, become more positive throughout it, and then, you know, in the end, he would, um, you know, he would call me from work. He has a very high-powered job, and he would still find time in the middle of his day to just give me a call and um, and check on me and check on the baby. And so I know he was very excited and focused on, on the idea of it. Um, but it wasn't really until the end that I think he really felt like he could, um, you know, kind of let go a little bit, uh, being cautious and just embrace. Very excited, yeah. Yeah. How far do you guys live apart geographically? Um, we're just a couple hours apart. Okay. So yeah, we were we were able to visit quite often. Visit. During yeah, the yeah. So Joanna, talking about caregivers, um, uh, you know, Henry it sounds like had had quite a role as a care, as a caregiver mm-hmm. on many levels. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it so important to make sure the caregiver has his or own his or her own uh, support system, or that they recognize the fact that they might need support or should be you know accessing some support uh, you know in the midst of of cancer and everything else that Henry was dealing with here? One of the things I sort of uh, held on to as Pam was speaking is that that in some ways sometimes the situation can be made, be most difficult for the caregiver, mm-hmm. <laughs> him or herself. Then um, that's really not uncommon. I think the reason why it's so important to make sure that the caregiver has his or her own support system is that the caregiver is an essential member of the couple, you know? And if the caregiver has enough support and is in a good place, then he or she can support the other. And while this may seem obvious when I say something like this, it, often it's not. You know, more often, you know, a lot of, of attention and focus given to the cancer patient. You know, cancer gets all the support and attention and but and the caregiver is is often left to function and take on more responsibilities, in fact, on their own. And um, again, you know, if communication is optimal and good, in fact, ideally, you know, couples can talk with each, you know, amongst themselves about what each person needs and wants. They can share frustrations, disappointments, you know, joys. But sometimes a couple can't, you know, sometimes we, uh, you know, we can't be everything within a couple to each other, you know, and. We sort of, as, you know, in general, as humans, we really benefit from from social contact of all sorts, whether it be close friends, family, and sometimes, you know, peers or you know, with or people acquaintances whom we do not really have much contact with, but whom we can share things in ways that can really help. And partly that's because um, we may be less inclined to share some things with someone we love because we don't want to hurt them. And so ideally we want to have a mixture of contacts, and that's why support groups of people, you know, for caregivers in particular, can be so helpful. I know at the wellness community um, we're able to offer support groups of caregivers at local facilities, you know, but also online where people can talk about some of these issues about fertility and, and what they can learn a lot from each other about what are some of the options. I mean, one of the things I'm hearing from Pam is that, you know, her cousin weren't even aware, weren't really even thinking about the option of surrogacy, and that wasn't even in their in, in their mind. And yet, perhaps if you're the group of other people who are 
faced with some of the similar challenges, you can begin to learn about what are some of the other options that may be out there for you. So I, it really can reduce that sense of being alone or isolated, you know. And I think that's just really important. Pam, how, how old were your own children uh, when you were pregnant with Hope, and, and how did you talk to your kids about this? Um, they were, let's see, I have three children, and my oldest at the time was eight, and then that Kelly, and then my son was five, and my youngest was three. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had, you know, because of their ages, had different understandings of yeah. the situation. Um, and we we waited until we had completed kind of the research and the psychological and medical evaluations um, to determine whether we were going to be able to go ahead with this before we talked to the kids at all about it. And um, we actually made the decision with Henry and Lauren on Easter. They came down to visit us, and we had all done a lot of research um, separately, and we came to talk and decide if this is something we really wanted to move forward with. Um, And it wasn't until after that that we talked to the kids about it. But we were very straightforward. Um, Kids were actually, honestly, much more accepting of the idea of surrogacy than adults. Um, Adults have a lot of... uh, issues tied up with, you know, different ways of bringing babies into the world, I guess, and kids are just much more open to that, and we just told them, you know, Lauren was sick, um, her belly doesn't work the right way, so she can't bear, carry a baby, so they're going to just put, the doctors are just going to put their baby inside me, and I'm going to carry it for a while, and then when it's done, we'll give it back. <laughs> <laughs> that was the easy God, it's, it just makes it sound so simple, doesn't it? Kids are great. <laughs> Well, you know, and honestly, it is simple. It's, you know, I think people just... That's right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are different ways of bringing kids into the world, but, um, you know, that it's all about the end result, and the kids aren't hung up hung up on how you get there. It was it was fun. The funny times was listening to the kids explain to their own friends um, <laughs> about the baby. There was one time, I, this is in, the, in my book, but there was one time Duncan was playing basketball in the driveway with his friend down the street and I could I was in the kitchen I could overhear through the window their little conversation but it was very straightforward you know uh, you, little boy's like so your mom's gonna have a baby and then it's like uh, yeah but it's my cousin she's just carrying it for a while and then she's gonna give it back, give it back. <laughs> and, and his friend was like okay and that was it okay, great let's go play basketball <laughs> <laughs> kids are kids are amazing really amazing yeah and they were so you know all three of the kids were so um excited about the baby and, and proud of her. Um, and they, you know, while she was in my belly, they, they would talk to her and sing to her and tell her they loved her. And they just couldn't wait for her to come out. And, you know, when she did finally arrive, they were so proud of her. You know, you thought they would have delivered her. <laughs> oh, God, that's so sweet. Yeah, it is. So, Pam, we just got a minute or two until we go to break. But maybe the question probably on a lot of people's minds is, was it hard for you to to give hope up after after the birth? Was it hard for you to, 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 to hand her over after going through that experience? You know, that's the one question I, I always get. And um, the best way I can explain it is um, it was not hard to give her up because I wasn't giving her up. I was just giving her back. Um, you know, I was a caregiver, an incubator, a protector, a caretaker, whatever you want to call it, but I was not her mother, and I um, I never felt like I was her mother in the entire process of the surrogacy, and even, you know, when she was born, um, when she came out, you know, I knew she was theirs, and it was honestly just pure joy and relief um, to give her to them, and it was this 
kind of culminating, overwhelming moment to hand her over, but it was not in any way, um, you know, sad or felt like I was losing something. Um, You know, honestly, throughout the whole process and, and after the baby was delivered, the only thing that I felt in terms of loss was just losing that surrogacy relationship with my cousin and his wife because that's what the bonding was more about my bonding with them than it was with the baby itself um you know obviously I I cared for her and you know it was very happy to carry her and I was very protective of her but I was not bonding like a mother with her there was a connection but it was not you know a mother-child bond but but I did you know the whole relationship with my cousin throughout the year of this whole process and his wife, um, it was just such an amazing experience to go through with them that it was hard, you know, to kind of give up that special status and relationship at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, it's amazing, Pam. Really, it's an it's it's a uh, it's an amazing and 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 touching story. Um, fr- frankly speaking, about cancer, we're talking today about uh, fertility options um, for folks who are facing cancer, and uh, Pam is sharing. Uh, with us, Pam McPhee, her extraordinary story of how she decided to uh, be a surrogate for her cousin uh, and his wife when his wife was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Um, and uh, Pam then went on. After our uh, break, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about your book. Pam went on to write an amazing book, Delivering Hope, The Extraordinary Journey uh, of a Surrogate Mom. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back for uh, the last segment of the show. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've been having an amazing 
uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Joanne Bazagla, who is the Senior Director of Research at the Wellness Community, a Ph.D. psychologist, and with Pam McPhee, who is the author of a book called Delivering Hope, the Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom. Uh, Pam decided that she would uh, surrogate her cousin's baby uh, when his wife uh, was diagnosed with cervical cancer and was determined that she would not be able to uh, bear children on her own. Um, Pam, let's take a minute to talk a little bit about the book. Um, again, the book is called Delivering Hope, The Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom. Why did you decide to, uh, uh, to write the book? What was that process like for you? Um, there's actually a few different reasons. The, um, the initial reason when I was a researching surrogacy, um, getting ready to start my journey with my cousin and his wife, there wasn't really anything there um, to read about it. There was one or two books that talked about kind of the practical aspects of surrogacy, the, you know, the shots and the embryo transfer and the evaluations and the legal contracts, but there wasn't really anything out there that talked about what it really felt like or what a surrogate was thinking or feeling um, when she was going through a surrogacy. Um, and, and either for, actually either from the surrogate's perspective or the intended parents. And I felt like that was really missing. Like when I w- was beginning my journey, I, I, I would have liked to have known, okay, what, what can I expect? How am I going to feel? Or is this normal to feel this way? Um, and is it okay? And, you know, I had other sources of support from the psychologist and the support group, and I had other people to talk to, but it would have been really nice to have something um, to read. There were some stories online that I could read to get glimpses of that, but there was nothing really in print that I could kind of grab a hold of. Um, and then, um, so that was that was one of the primary reasons. And then the, one of the other reasons was over the course of the surrogacy, I was literally asked, you know, thousands of questions um, by friends and strangers alike, parents, mothers, fathers, you know, that test pilot, CEOs, I mean, grandparents, just from all walks of life, life um, most of them, I would probably say, had had children, so that was kind of their their point of attachment, but um, people just in general are really fascinated by the idea of surrogacy, and they were just wondering, you know, how did I feel when this happened? How did I feel when the transfer was about to happen? Or how did it, you know, how did I talk to my cousin's wife about things? And um, and they just wanted to know what it really felt like to go through it. Um, yeah. and, and so I wanted to be able to answer those questions Um not only for surrogates and intended parents, but just for, you know, the general population who are just fascinated by the idea of a, a woman carrying somebody else's child and then giving it back to them. Um, and then really the, the final reason is it was such a, uh, you know, a touching, amazing experience for me. You know, it definitely had an impact on my life and my family's life and um, and the people around us. And I wanted to be able to share, you know, a story of hope and giving and joy um, with the world, you know, with, you know, not only cancer survivors and people struggling with infertility, um, but just people, you know, seeking, you know, some kind of positive, inspiring story. So um, those, those were really the, the reasons I thought um, it, it would be great to write a book about the story. And it, it's great to think about it, but it's a lot to actually do it. So it's been a long process and a lot of work, but I've actually, you know, I've really enjoyed it, and and I do enjoy writing. Although this is the, you know, really the first thing that I've published like a book. Um, so it was, um, you know, it, it was a difficult process, but a really exciting and fun one at the same time. Do you have any regrets about your decision about what you did? Absolutely not. Um, 
you know, there there are challenges. There are a lot of challenges in surrogacy. There is, you know, I was very nauseous um, with the pregnancy. There was the exhaustion. There's a lot of, you know, shots. I had to do a lot of hormone shots. There's a lot of time and travel going back and forth to fertility clinics. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's the, the birth itself, and it was a C-section for me, so recovering from surgery. And so there's a lot of difficult challenges along the way, but... Um, you know, but focusing on what I was able to give my cousin and his wife, you know, giving them a family and a, a child and witnessing their joy, and I still get to witness it from time to time, um, you know, it makes all those things very inconsequential. <laughs> so um, so I absolutely have no regrets whatsoever. And how do you feel now when you see Hope? Um, you know, it's really wonderful to see her. It's funny because we don't often, you know, we, we see my cousin and his wife probably every few months, and um we don't often talk about the surrogacy itself anymore, but there's usually a moment when we're together um, when I'll be reminded of it. And um, and she definitely feels a connection to me. You know, she knows our story. She's known it since she was a little girl. Her mom told her that I carried her inside of me. And so she loves that that's her, you know, special story that brought her into the world, and she used to make her mom tell it to her every night before she went to bed. <laughs> Um, but so she, you know, we we definitely feel there's a there's a connection to each other. Just kind of you've gone through a special experience together, and um, you know I'm so grateful that she she essentially chose me to take her on that journey. So. Yeah. And how about your kids' connection to her? Is it is it does her cousin hope? I mean, is that how they feel? And yeah, they're real. I mean, they love her to death, and you know, cousins are great to start with anyway. But this was, um, you know, it, it's a little bit more than that because of. Um, the journey that brought her into the world, but um, they're really good friends, and they have they have so much fun together. So I I love when we all get together and make those connections, and it reminds me of you know my time as a child with my cousin Henry and jumping on beds and playing in the creek and all that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> oh wow, amazing, Joanne. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the show, but um, love to hear what advice you would give to a cancer patient who who is coping with fertility issues and, and uh, how to put that kind of in a, you know, in a, in a context, in a framework, and really, uh, you know, how to cope with some of that? Well, I think I, one of the things I've heard from Pam, one of the things that she said is just research your options, you yeah. know, and, and talk to your doctor and your medical team about it, you know, the, uh, really as, as early as you can because um, it's important that your medical team, for example, knows that you're really interested in knowing what your fertility options are. Yeah. And so that, that's one, one key thing. Um, and also leaving your options open, it's really important, because maybe, maybe at the time of a cancer diagnosis, you know, fertility really may not be what's most relevant thing at the time, but down the pike that may change. So somehow keeping that in mind. And then there's the issue, just really understanding that it's not unusual for this to be a really hard thing for a couple to go through. And that, you know, that each and each person in the couple may have different views about adoption, surrogacy, infertility treatments, and that, 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 that finding ways to communicate about that is really important. And partly, I mean, to get the support you need in order to be able to understand what your thoughts are about, about and thoughts and feelings are about uh, your, your options and, and some of the losses and yet some of the possibilities. So um, 
my, my, I think one of my lines always is never go it alone, you yeah. know. Yeah. Use all your resources. Speak to your medical team. Speak to your, your friends, your family. And, and also there are many, you know, there are great organizations out there. You know, there's Fertile Hope. It's a great advocacy organization around fertility. And also the organizations like the wellness community and, and others that, that have, you know, where you can get support and education and hope um, from other people like you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quickly, Pam, any advice that you might have for our listeners? Um, I would just say to you know, not be afraid to, as you said, to explore your options. And um, there's a lot of online resources um, and information about surrogacy. Um, and, you know, there there's more than one way of bringing a baby into this world. And, um, you know, I see my cousin and his wife now with their family, and um, they are ecstatic, and it doesn't, really matter at this point and how, you know, how hope came into the world. <laughs> yeah. um, they're just so happy to be a family. So j- just to keep that in mind, too. Yeah. Well, Pam, it's an amazing story, really, that you've shared with us today. Um, just extraordinary. I know I'm, I'm really touched uh, by your decision and by the way you've chosen to share your story with us and with others. And uh, I'm sure, Joanne, I know you're moved uh, as well by this uh, by this incredible story. So I want to thank both of you for joining us um, today to share this. It's been uh, an amazing discussion. Um, if you would like to order a copy of Pam's book, uh, Delivering Hope, The Extraordinary Journey of a Surrogate Mom, you can go to www.deliveringhopebook.com. For more information on cancer and fertility, you can contact Fertile Hope, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to providing reproductive information, support, and hope to cancer patients and survivors uh, whose medical treatment may present the risk of infertility. Visit their website at FertileHope.org, or you can call the Fertile Hope hotline at 888-994-HOPE. Uh, last but not least, if you'd like more information about uh, the wellness community's free uh, support and educational services, please visit our website at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Uh, there are also there's a lot of information on the site, a lot of resources on the site, information about our 24 centers across the country, also information there. We are a nonprofit organization, so there's information there about how you can contribute uh, and support our important work. You can also call us on our toll-free line at 888-793-WELL, W-E-L-L. And again, the website is www.thewellnesscommunity.org. I want to dedicate this show to all the surrogate mothers out there who are helping men and women uh, fulfill their dreams of, uh, of having children. And again, it's been an amazing story and an amazing conversation. Thank you for uh, listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. And until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.